This morning's scripture is from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. That's 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. This is God's word. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. When I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. As we hear uh, in 1 Kings... This is in this story after Solomon became king of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And God asked him, what do you want now that you are king? And he asked for an understanding mind to govern God's people in order to discern between good and evil. And so because God, because Solomon asked for a wise and understanding mind and not for riches or for the life of his enemies or for a long life, God gave him that wise and discerning mind unlike any other kings before him and after, along with the riches and and the promise that he will have a long life as long as he seeks the Lord and keeps his commandments as David, his father, had done. And our text this morning is is, is the recorded display of that understanding mind to govern in order to discern what is good and what is evil. Would you join with me in prayer, the Lord, to bless her message this morning. God, we thank you that you have called us here to hear your word, and we pray that you would give us uh, a heart that is receptive to what we're about to hear. Uh, Even if things may be difficult, God, Lord, may we examine in your scripture and and know that your word is true and that it is good. And so, Lord, give us the grace to hear, to to be joyful in in all that you have said, knowing that you remain to be with us as our good God. So bless us, Lord, through the sermon this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You know, when uh, Daphne and I got married back in 2011, we knew that one day we would be parents. We just didn't know how many kids we would have. And uh, at the time, we were open to having six or more kids because Daphne is one of six kids. About four months into our marriage, we found out that we're having a child. And um, just like the father in, in that video, I, I, was, I was terrified. I was scared. Um, we weren't prepping or, or ready to have kids within our first year. And it's not like we didn't know how babies are made, but we, we just did not expect that we would be parents so soon in our marriage. But eventually, that anxiety and fear grew into thankfulness and gratitude. And, and I remember sitting in, in one of my seminar classes, getting a call from Daphne after her first ultrasound appointment. And she told me about her son's heart. And in that moment, as I had the phone in my, uh, to, to my head, floods just, our, our tears just welled up in my eyes in front of all of my classmates in this one seminary class that I was attending. And when Nolan was born, we were so excited and thankful to have been blessed with this child. I still have memories of holding my firstborn in my arms, and, and I couldn't stop tearing up and crying because the entire thing was so miraculous and beautiful. Daphne and I had been parents to this child for nine months, and we finally got to see him with our eyes, and I instantly fell in love with him. Then, as some of you know, about five months after after he was born, Nolan started having seizures, and, and we noticed that he was regressing in his development. He stopped mimicking sounds, he stopped looking at us in the eyes, and he failed to meet all of his expected milestones. Years later, as, as Daphne suspected due to our background knowledge in early childhood development, Nolan was diagnosed on the autism spectrum disorder. This made us uh, a bit fearful about having more kids, now, I don't have the time to recall everything, nor do I remember everything, but I can just simply tell you that we, we had some hard days of trying to figure out how to raise this kid. And we read articles and, and research about the, the likelihood of having another child on the spectrum, and so we weren't sure if we could handle that. But we were also thinking about Nolan's future. We're thinking perhaps a sibling might help not just for his development, but, but even for his livelihood, when one day Daphne and I will no longer be here. We had to go through seasons of just thinking if we should have another child, because we knew the price that our second-born might have to pay for having a brother who is on the spectrum, where we might have to ask her to sacrifice some of her time to help us raise her older brother and be there for him in the days where we cannot. We knew that it would be an unfair thing to ask of her. Eventually, we just trusted that God would provide. Through our church community here, we've seen how our son is loved. And we were so thankful and we were so confident that, that through the, the visible hand of Christ in the church, we knew that our family will be taken care of by God. God would always remain faithful to us. So, so we decided to try and we waited for the Lord. And eventually, with typical pregnancy symptoms, we suspected that we're having another child, and Daphne took a test, and sure enough, it was positive. So we said, okay, it's happening again. I'm going to be a dad to two kids. I was excited. I anticipated having another child. But within the first trimester, Daphne started experiencing some symptoms and eventually found out that we experienced a miscarriage. The baby wasn't there anymore. Sometime later, another expectation with similar symptoms that led to a second positive. So I was like, okay, 
here we go. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as optimistic or enthused as the first time, but you know what? It's still exciting nonetheless. Then again, within the first trimester, various yet similar symptoms as the first, eventually leading to an appointment that confirmed that we had experienced yet another miscarriage. The third miscarriage had a greater impact on me personally. Daphne found out that she's pregnant again for the third time after having Nolan. And this time I just waited. Um, didn't, didn't really want to have any excitement because I, I didn't want to experience any disappointments. Not with Daphne, never with Daphne, but, but I think perhaps with God, where we had these moments of joy and celebration only to experience loss, and I just didn't want to have any hopes. So I, I just I would say, okay, let's just wait and see how this goes. Um, where am I? I lost myself in the note. Okay. <laughs> But this time, she, she was pregnant long enough to get an ultrasound. And, and I don't recall if she got an ultrasound with the first two pregnancies. I, I wasn't there for that, but I was there for this one. And we saw the beating heart. And I said, okay, this is it. No false positives, no two lines on the test. We, I see a clear evidence of life in the womb. We're, we're having another child. Then around the 11th week, right about as we we're about to pass our first trimester, around that time when couples publicly announced that they're expecting. Daphne started experiencing similar symptoms as the first two miscarriages. And I, I was scared. We called a nurse, told her what all these symptoms are, and she said, just keep monitoring and wait. Just wait and see, because some of these symptoms do happen in healthy pregnancies. But when the symptoms kept persisting, they eventually told us to come in. And we went to the hospital, they used an ultrasound, and... There was no heartbeat. Moments later, a doctor came in and had Daphne lie down as if she's giving birth to examine whether there is a baby inside there or not. And throughout the entire procedure, I was just so furious because this physician came in and just kept calling our baby a product of conception. The product of conception is no longer there. The product of conception is being removed. And I was like, why can't you just call this a baby or a child. I would have rather called this, that you would call our child a fetus rather than a product of conception. And it was so cold and so distant in moments when we were trying to even process how we're supposed to feel at the moment. So we went home, and I remember the, the registering nurse just showed much more sympathy, just saying, I'm sorry for your loss, as we just went home without really even understanding how to feel. And I didn't know how to feel. Do I, do I console my wife? I remember Daphne even asking me, how are you, Jacob? And I just didn't know how to respond. Do I, do I console you? Are, are you being strong for me? Should I be strong for you? I wasn't weeping. I wasn't crying. I didn't know what to feel at the time. So we just went home and lived and, and went about our days. Sometime later, as we kept trying and waiting for the Lord, while very well submitting to the idea that we may not have any more biological kids, we ended up having our little girl, Thea. She is our rainbow child, and it's the, it's the title that we give to children who are born after the mother had experienced in previous pregnancies, miscarriages, and stillbirth. It's a, it's a promise of life after experiencing death, just like the flood story in Noah. And so Thea is our rainbow child, and she is of great delight to us. 
I share this story with you in the opening of the sermon to ask you, how many children do Daphne and I have? And it's a question that I never really thought to ask myself until I started reading the life of Tim and Eileen Chalice after the, death, after the sudden death of their 21-year-old son and the life of Johnny and Jackie Gibson after the death of their second child, Layla, who was stillborn after being in the womb for 39 weeks. And they wrestle with this very question whenever people ask them, how many children do you have? Depending on the situation or the person who's asking, Tim, for example, Tim Chalice would say, I'm a father to three children, two girls in their teens and one son who is waiting for me in heaven. And Jackie, though she has three children with her now, she would say in response to this question, four. I have four children. And they have this statement and this assurance because they believe, as God has presented himself to us, that he is the God not of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And with the very promise that he has made in the covenant, that these children are not dead, but they are alive and with the Lord. So Tim and Eileen, John and Jackie, they know they have never stopped being a parent to their son or to their daughter. In our text this morning, King Solomon has a dispute that he needs to resolve, and it's a dispute between two prostitutes. Scholars dispute how prostitutes were able to stand before the king in the first place. Some scholars argue that these prostitutes may have gone into lower courts and have asked these lower judges to come to the decision, and they couldn't come up with the decision. So the case was elevated to the king so that the the king could make the decision, and it was also a test of the wisdom that he supposedly received from God. Some scholars suspect that this was really an act of Solomon showing love for all people in Israel, even the prostitutes. So he would welcome all people before his throne so that he can wisely judge and try them, even if they are the, the most marginalized people or even despised people in the society. Their profession is mentioned only in the beginning because the emphasis of our passage here is really on Solomon's wisdom, that God has truly given him such wisdom to discern good and evil. And this was a difficult case. And in, in our English translation, it gives the impression that we know exactly who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie. But really, in the original writing, we really don't know who's telling the truth or who's lying. In verse 27, what it literally says in Hebrew is, Give to her the child who is alive. And we don't know who the her is. In the English translation, it says give to the first one. But, but we don't really know who is the innocent one here. Solomon clearly pointed at someone, but we don't know who that person is. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, we, we don't know, just from this, their, their testimonies alone, we don't know who's telling the truth. The woman who claims to have had the baby switched may be coming up with this story. After all, how did she know that the, uh, that the baby died by being pressed by the mom? How did she have that knowledge if both of them were supposedly asleep when it happened? Or maybe the babies were genuinely switched and that she was telling the truth. What is clear, however, is that these women knew which one is their baby. Even though they're the only ones who are testifying, they know who this living child belongs to. Only these two women know for certain who's telling the truth and who is lying. So how does Solomon display this wisdom that he has received from God to govern? How can he discern which one is telling the truth and which one is lying? He does it by determining which one loves this child like a mother would. 
not by how the baby looks and resembling the faces, but just determining which one of them loves this child like a mother should. And so today's sermon is not so much on the horrors of abortion. Uh, we, We touched upon that last year in January, so you can look back. But I would also encourage you to check out Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. I think, I think he's one of the, the great apologists when it comes to pro-life arguments, uh, as well as the resource that I sent on our Facebook page, The Life, uh, Life is Best, also by Scott Klusendorf. It's a video series. Uh, so I, w- I would encourage you to check those resources out and, and be equipped in, in, in this topic. But today, my, my call for you and, and challenge for all of us as believers is really to love people as like a mother would love her children. And we see here what a mother's love entails. And so these are the three things that we'll cover this morning. Number one, mother's love values life. Number two, mother's love nurtures life. And number three, mother's love fights for life. Values life, nurtures life, and fights for life. So when Solomon needed to discern between these testimonies with no other testimonies to validate theirs, his solution was, get a sword, let's divide this child in two, you get half and you get the other. And obviously Solomon, his goal wasn't actually to divide the child, but he wanted to see which of the two would value the life of this child because that's what a mother would do. Did he already suspect by hearing their testimonies and the shaking of their voice which one was telling the truth? Did he have such wisdom that a twitching of an eye or looking at a particular direction would indicate that one is telling the truth or a lie? We don't know. And even today, science is questioning whether those things are real. But with the wisdom he received from God, he knew he could discern the real mother by the way she valued the life of the child. So when Solomon threatened to kill the boy to deprive both mothers of of their sons, the real mother chose to give up her son so that the other woman can raise him as her own. The other woman wanted the real mother to share in her misery and deprive her of her son as she has been deprived of hers. But the real mother would rather see this child live with the liar than see her child get chopped in two. So dear friends, as we contemplate on how we value life, my my question or, or my call for you this morning is that we would love like a mother by valuing a li- the life of a fellow human being. Whether that person is an embryo or an elderly or anywhere in between, that we would see every person to be of great value. Because every single human being is created in the image of God. Even if that person is not in human form, but is a clump of cells developing into what we see in each other, that person is, or that being is still a person worthy of dignity and honor. As those who are made in God's image, God could have simply wiped us out because of our disobedience, but instead he decided to redeem us. He decided to show us our value Instead of showing his glory and love to another creature, he decided he chose to keep us as his treasured possession. So much so that the psalmist couldn't help but ask when he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in their place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is wondering, why are we human beings so valuable to you, God? When you have created so many other majestic and wonderful things. That's because the inherent value of a human being did not deplete 
even in sin. That even though we may act beastly, that we are still very much human beings created in the image of God. Though we are corrupted in our nature, we still remain to be image bearers of God. And this is how much God loves us as creatures made in his image. The apex of all creation. The, the highest of all creation. That one day we would even judge angels with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is also why our sins are so horrible, even if they're seen as small in our eyes. And our sins are terrible. Because as human beings, we often find value, more value in other creatures than our fellow man. But the price of our redemption could not be anything less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To redeem us could not be any less than the life and the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. So as you see how much God values human life, dear friends, may we value human life. From the womb to the tomb and that we would find no desire or satisfaction to see lives lost. A loving mother, however, is more than just changing our thoughts when it comes to the human life. We don't just value life in our minds, but as we value life, we seek to nurture life, going into our second point. As the two women gave birth, we see that neither one of them had the desire to end the life of their sons. They were both nurturing and feeding their sons, but one just happened to die. Whether it was by being pressed or other means, we don't know, because again, we don't know who's telling the truth here. But we know that a mother's role is to nurture her child. And, and of course, brothers, fathers, right, you, you have a role in this as well. But um, when we emphasize care and nurture, we often emphasize mother's love over fatherly love. Because as Erica Commissar, who's a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and a parent coach, said um, in her study, she has found that mothers are for attachments, where fathers, particularly young boys, are for separation. And what she means by that is fathers help children become independent human beings. Where mothers are often more about safety, and it's like, no, stay with me, stay with me. The fathers are like, no, 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 come, come away from the mom. Let's go do something risky. Let's go jump off the playground. Let's, let's do something on our own. Uh, and so she says that there's that dynamic, and, and a child needs both a mom and a dad to help them have this good balance of closeness as well as independence. So if a boy has attachment issues, she would argue, where he's constantly a mama's boy and cannot separate from his mother, it's most likely due to an absence of a father, including fathers who are physically present but never spending time with their children. So we often associate safety and nurture with mothers more than fathers, but all this is to say, as we value life, we should seek to nurture every human life. Now, we can't care for every human being in the world, but we are certainly to care for those who are near us, and most definitely to care for those who are here in the church. For the world will know that you are the disciples of Christ if you have love for one another. We know that in our country, we have a single parent problem, where even some people are choosing to become single parents. We know that in our country and even in our area of Fairfax County, there is an economic problem with growing poverty. And due to such, people are finding abortion to be an appealing option, just like some of the stories that we heard earlier today. Yet we can tell these struggling parents, there's another way. You don't have to abort or terminate your child. There is another way. I remember seeing a thread on Twitter, um, X. 
uh, and I, I remember reading these uh, X posts, uh, <laughs> and one of them said, Dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support lower-income single mothers? I'll wait. I imagine that's how the person was saying it. Um, I don't know if it was in, in support of pro-lifers, if it was to critique pro-lifers, but upon this post, hundreds of people replied, and, 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 and people responded with things like, I, don't, I donate to multiple charities that help feed, clothe, and educate women. I worked on legislation to improve the foster care system and to educate women on the availability of safe havens where they can safely surrender a baby if it comes to that. Another post, I've thrown several baby showers for low-income moms and families in the area, opened my home to one of them, dropped what I was doing several times to give rides to a mom and newborn to doctor's appointments, provided friendship, mentorship, and support along the way. And another person responded, I volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center. We gave out diapers and baby formula and had a store with kids' clothes that moms could shop in. It was a beautiful place and really helped many women. And, and these lines of, of, of posts were caught by a group called Secular Pro-Life, whose statement is, you don't have to be religious to be against killing humans. But as followers of Jesus Christ, what are we to do? Paul says to the Romans, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. As people in the world without knowledge or love or power from God who are doing what is good and right, we Christians are supposed to do more than that because we have God himself dwelling in us. And so we're to outdo the good work that's being done in the world with more good works that for, for the sake of God's glory. Or as James wrote to the church, if anyone thinks he is religious but does not brittle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's saying if all you do is talk about what you believe and, what, and, and your profession does not affect your behavior in any way, then your beliefs are worthless. It's a belief that gives no hope. It's a belief that does not save anyone. If all you do is talk about what you believe, but your life has not been changed by it. So he continues, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you genuinely believe, if you make these professions, then your life should show it. That it's not about you but you give and you sacrifice, you nurture those who are hurting, the afflicted orphans, the afflicted widows, the preborn who cannot speak for themselves, or even the elderly who are in need of great need and assistance. So who can we nurture? Do you know anyone in your neighborhood who needs help? Do you know anyone in your area uh, who, who's of low income, a low-income family or a single mother. Perhaps you can consider offering, buying them groceries, diapers, or provide services. Perhaps you can work with people in your neighborhood or even your HOA and, and, and get uh, organize a baby shower for someone. We also have friends, like Madeline shared, friends from Assist Pregnancy Center, and, and they could use many people to volunteer and help. I shared this list last year, and when I look this year, it's the very same list, which tells me they're never in short supply of volunteers. 
let me read to you some of the ways that we can volunteer and, and people and, 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 and the needs that they have. They need abortion recovery Bible study volunteer. They need a administrative support, baby bottle fundraising campaign coordinator, baby shower volunteer, baby supply drive volunteer, cleaning volunteer. They need people who can mentor parents, whether you're a man or a woman. They need event coordinator volunteers. They need IT volunteers. They need mail team volunteers, maintenance support, medical volunteers with license RN, RDMS, MD, or OBGYN. And they even need videographers and photographers. If you have any of those skills, perhaps you can take the time to support an organization that we are partnering with as a church so that we're not simply saying we're for life, but that our profession is leading us to our change in our behavior. I believe that there's also an election coming up this year, whether it's local or federal, that you would take this issue into consideration when you decide to vote for your representative. That if we really value life and wish to nurture life, that we would do more than just enough to oppose abortion, but that we would do what's necessary to stop the killing. As one professor said, which brings me to the third point, where to love like a mother, we are to value life and nurture it, but we are also to fight for life. The mother of the living child in our story did whatever she could to make sure that she can keep and raise her son. And she even fought against the king's decree when Solomon held the sword in his hand to divide the child in two. And of course, this was Solomon's plan all along. His plan was to bring justice so that this child can live and be loved. But from the woman's perspective, she had to plead for the king to reconsider his decision just to keep the boy alive. And she fought with the other woman for the life of her son by giving up her son. And sons back then were precious, were extremely valuable because sons would inherit lands and provide for all the children and the women in the household. So to give up her son was a way to give up even her own personal dreams and hopes. She would sacrifice by losing her son, but she's also sacrificing any chance of peace and provision. And as a prostitute would have to keep selling her body to provide for herself with men who don't care for her. There's an extreme cost that we pay when we fight for life. If fighting for life is easy and profitable, sure, everyone would be on board. But as, as we've heard with the staff at Assist Pregnancy, the, the level of, of hiddenness that's required for all the staff members because they, they are in a risky business. And it's a hard, uh, and, and, and it's hard, and things will be sacrificed as a result of our fight for human life. This is why as we fight for our children, we find that parenting is extremely hard and parenting will always be a sacrificial work while parenting has also its enormous privileges and joys. And we want people to experience that as well. Not just focus on how hard it is to be a parent, but how rewarding and joy-filled it is to be a parent. And so as I speak on parenthood, I think for the context of our church, it's also important to address this topic that I think has been uh, keeping our staff from breathing. Um, it's something that we pastors talked about last week, knowing that I'll be preaching on the topic uh, here in Sanctity of Life Sunday. You know, in our country, we have one in four women who are struggling with fertility. And so there are many options to help our mothers uh, become pregnant. And one of those options to have biological children is through in vitro fertilization or IVF. And most pro-lifers do not oppose IVF technology. Your pastors 
do not oppose IVF technology. Now, having gone through those days when Daphne and I could not have a second child, I, I, I can understand in part just how difficult this can be to a couple where you're desiring to increase your home and bring children into your home, and yet time after time, you're just met with disappointment. And now knowing what it entails to even go through the procedure, I feel so burdened whenever I hear a couple going through IVF. There's the financial burden of going through a round where the success rate is generally around 20 to 35%, but the, the, the one procedure costs nearly as much as a car, and so you have to anticipate going through multiple rounds. There's the physical burden, and I think especially on the women who has to put in injections of hormones for 10 to 20 days in order to get your body prepared. I've read even of some emotional burdens where women question their body's capacity to bring life and struggling with that difficulty. And even the spiritual burden of just hoping and praying that God would be gracious to provide life in your home. And as I think about some of the people that I know who are going through this process, it brings me to tears just how much weight they must be carrying, how much they must have cried to God and to other people because it has costed you so much and met with so much disappointment or sadness. And that's why addressing this is, it has been hard for us as, as your ministers because we love you all. And in our church context, we know that this has been something that few of you have wrestled with or currently wrestling with, and even more than I'm aware of, I'm sure. We, as pastors, we are not against the technological advancements to bring a child into your home. And if we hear news that a round of IVF has been successful for you, we will be thrilled at the news. But this is where we have a problem with the procedure. They have to extract about 5 to 34 eggs, depending on the age of the woman. But they say generally the sweet number is 15. And they'll, they'll take those eggs and they'll fertilize it. Now, you don't have 5 to 34 eggs. You have 5 to 34 human beings who are outside the womb. And we know that these embryos can be frozen. Some say indefinitely, but generally in the U.S., the advisable time is 10 years. So if you're a couple who's thinking about this, or perhaps you have already gone through the procedure, what's going to happen to those embryos? What's going to happen to those human beings? Are you valuing those lives? Will you seek to nurture them to full term? Will you fight for them to live as, as their biological moms and dads? Because that's what you are. These embryos may not have mouths to speak or eyes to cry out tears, but as we con are convinced where, when life starts, we believe they have souls. Friends, I know it's easy for me to say to you, open your homes to foster care or seek to adopt, because when I say that, it's not going to cost me a lot. Though I, I do hope that this can be a future of some of your homes one day. But right now, I hope you'll at least consider your profession to life and make sure that your actions are consistent with what you profess. As we look at the love that this mother has for her son, 
you and I as believers, we are to be reminded of the greater love that God has for us. As God spoke through Isaiah, first speaking words of judgment for the nations and even for Israel due to their rebellion, God then speaks words of restoration and he says to them, can a woman forget her nursing child that, that she has no compassion, she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is saying there is such a thing as bad mothers, but God will never be a bad God to us. Parents, even mothers, can abandon their children, but God is saying, I will never abandon you, or God will never abandon us. And as, as parents, when we disciple our children with great love, our children will reflect and meditate on the word of God, and they'll ask, if my parents love me this much, how much greater is the love of God? And as they reflect upon the scriptures, they will see a bloodied and pierced flesh of our Savior. The Son of God who was given up so that you and I, who were once considered his enemies, can be brought in as sons and daughters. They'll then see the resurrected Lord who defeated sin and death. The one who promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but will be with us always to the end of the age. And when you and I see and receive that love, then we can only begin to love like a mother would and even grow to love like the way our Savior does. Valuing all those whom God has created, nurturing life to sustain and to flourish, and to fight even for those who cannot defend themselves. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, because you are the author of life, Every sign of life born and created in your covenant household will one day be a homecoming for all of us. Even to those children whom we have never met or those whom we have lost, we know that by your promise, we will see each other to rejoice one day under your care and in your presence. Thank you, God, that you have given us life. That while we are here, though we go through various stages of, of trials and tribulation, we know that we also experience your great love. That we can live for the sake of glorifying you and enjoying you forever. So I pray that as your people, we would grow with greater confidence and desire to see life thrive. In hopes that through our actions and our profession, people may see our Savior and find in you the very joy which we profess and have life that is everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.